C.S. Lewis has a quote. Um, he says, I, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. Port's a dessert wine for those who you don't know. Um, he continues on, if you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Um, I was talking with someone recently and I realized that this person had been going to um, a number of sort of Christian, well, they were going to a lot of Christian events in the, in the city, a lot of Christian, uh, different churches, different um, social gatherings. Uh, they were even volunteering at a, at a number of different Christian organizations. And I, I realized in just a few questions that this person did not understand the gospel. And part of me gets it. I do get it. There are certain benefits that come with being part of a covenant community. We have great fellowship together. We we care for one another. We we, we tend to be more gracious with one another. Uh, You know, if you were to walk into a club or a bar, you're probably not going to find a real warm, welcoming community. Well, I guess depending on which one you go into, but I'm not saying that church is perfect. <clears throat> We're definitely broken people who need Christ. But genuine Christian fellowship has a different feel than non-Christian fellowship. What is it that makes the Christian fellowship different? I'd say it covers some of what we looked at last week. We have this biblical view of of Christ and and who he is and what he's done. We have a biblical view of sin. We understand the nature of man in a sense, and therefore we have a greater appreciation for Christ. But that's the hard part, right? It's that coming to an end of yourself, or or as Lewis puts it, it, it's sort of the being uncomfortable. It's not going to make you comfortable. It's easy to come alongside and gain some of the the benefits of Christian community. It's hard to wrestle with sin and its entanglements. It's hard to submit to a higher power that is not yourself. And yet in understanding, that understanding of him and us, we submit to him. Because we know his nature and we know our nature and so we submit to him. But here's the thing about submission and and obedience as we're talking about this morning. They're they're not really in vogue today, are they? Everything today is about being the master of your own domain, master of yourself. So anything biblical on marriage about uh, submitting is automatically rejected as out of date. Saying that my body is not only my own when there is a viable life inside is hatred. Um, Apparently, in some places, this is real, uh, parents cannot change their child's diaper unless they get verbal permission from the child. Lindsay and I read that and our house would be very dirty if that were the case. There's lots of tears, but it doesn't stink. You see, in today's culture, anything that sort of 
has this feel or, or even sniffs of weakness or submission and words like this or authority are pushed out all the while following the authority of self. And John has just lined out the nature of forgiveness to his readers. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. But what is the, what would, what is the human nature response to hearing that Jesus has done it all? What is the, the, the natural response to hearing that Christ has done it all apart from rejecting Christ? It's sort of the, thank you Jesus, bye Jesus. He forgave me and now I'm done. I can just keep living the life that I want to live because his grace covers all. It's very dangerous. We call this license or, or, or a more technical term, antinomianism. And so to fight against that mentality, John continues and he writes, And by this, we know that we have come to know him. What is this? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Biblical Christianity never suggests that we gain God's mercy by being good. Biblical Christianity never suggests that we gain favor with God or or, or enter heaven by trying hard. But biblical Christianity nevertheless does insist on obedience. That is... That we are so changed, we are so transformed in our lives, that the effect in us orientates us to following Christ. Otherwise, the confession, Jesus is Lord, it carries no water, there's no weight, it's meaningless. It's not a feeling or a sensation. It's not happy worship. It's not sensing that one is particularly spiritual. But obedience, says John, is a fundamental test. Obedience is a fundamental test. I remember going to one of those emotional, feeling-type services with some friends once. And I remember the, the heavy music and the dimmed lights... And I remember feeling less moved than the people in my group. Certainly less than the people in the room, where everyone seemed to be crying and swaying. And I remember leaving thinking, am I less Christian than these people? Uh, Do they have a better understanding of Christ than I have? Do they know God better than I do? They very well might. They very well might. I, I don't know. 
But I do know the Bible never says if you are more emotional, it means you have a better understanding, a, a better knowledge. I, I understand our, our emotions are certainly intertwined with our, our hearts and our, our minds in some capacity. But what I do know is that the word says it is your obedience that shows your knowledge of God. And our obedience is it's tied, it's linked with our assurance. The beauty of this little letter of 1 John is that it speaks to both sides of the aisle. If you have been going your own way and you need correction, these words push you. They, they, they tend to kind of sear you. And you begin, hopefully, to, to ask yourself, do I really believe this? Where is it that I am struggling? Where is it that God's word is is beginning to do a work in my life? On the other side of the aisle, people have great doubts. Think of some of the greats. Luther, Spurgeon, John Bunyan, William Cowper. Many of these great men and women had great moments of doubt. And the word comes in. And gives assurance. By this we know. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commands. If we have no desire. If we have absolutely no desire to obey. But we claim to know him. We lie and the truth is not in us. Because as Jesus said. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So if I know that my my heart seeks to, to know his commands and, and to obey his commands, then we can have confidence, that we can have assurance. The problem is when our old nature comes in and, 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 and seeks not to obey. The good news is that our assurance before God is not dependent on our perfect obedience. Remember, if we claim to be without sin or if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves or we make God out to be a liar. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that advocate had perfect obedience, obedience to the point of death, so that we might have life. So that, how do we gain that life? How do we get to that point? Well, we read in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's in abiding in Christ. It's in trusting. It's in putting our our saving faith in Christ. The one whose perfect obedience merited eternal life. And we then ought to walk in the way in which he walked. Which sounds scary, right? But God's not expecting perfection. It's not in perfection, but it's in that trusting obedience, desiring God be glorified. We even talked about it in the prayer. It's the, it's the, it's the, the confession and repentance and, and, and keep coming back to Him. Keep coming back to Him. Remembering who He is and what He's done. 
Well, John assumes that his readers have read the Gospels or at least familiar with what Jesus did during his earthly ministry and what he taught. So what is it that Jesus did? What is it that we are to align our lives with? Well, there's a lot of things. You could just pour over the Gospels and just read about what Christ had done, what he spoke, how he did it, his mentality, his, his, uh, his demeanor, all these things, the way he did all that. And I just thought I'd come up with just a few examples for us this morning instead of getting into all of them, which I don't think I ever could do. But I want us to think on just three. We think about how Jesus prayed. We think about how Jesus served. We think about how Jesus loved. He came to earth and he kept saying over and over again, I'm here to do the will of the Father." I'm here to do the will of the Father. And he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So we can pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It it gives us such a perspective as we consider the work that God has for us. It it gives us the perspective as we we looked at last week in chapter 1, the doctrine test that takes place. What is the nature of God? And what is the nature of sin and man? We pray that God would continually put that perspective before us, that we would be continually be remembering His nature, our nature, how those two align. So we can pray like Jesus prayed, with with that complete confidence that our futures are secure in the will of the Father. We can serve the way Jesus served. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, a form of service that one would think was below him. But the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And if we are to be his disciples, should we not be willing to serve others? How many of us have served in some way to demonstrate to others that that love of Christ? Now, I understand it's not always easy. Serving doesn't always come naturally to us. But God gives us the willingness and the ability to do these things. And I am more than aware there are people in your sphere that need a kind act, that need someone to come alongside and serve them. We don't have to have some experience. We don't need to hear from some spiritual teacher or a guru. It's not the experience or the guru who who gives us assurance of our knowledge of God. It is seen in our lives as we obey Him. And one of the outworkings of that obedience is love. Again, these are just a few examples. They're not the entirety. We can pray like Christ prayed. We can serve like Christ served. We can love like Christ loved. Verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
Love of the brother is the the fourth test of genuine fellowship. The the first was the biblical view of Christ in chapter 1. The second was the biblical view of sin, chapter 1. The third was the Uh, was obedience, chapter 2, and the fourth is love, chapter 2. And love and obedience are are tied together because love is the fulfillment of the law. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, Jesus is asked. His response, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Romans 13 Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now we know that we cannot keep the law on our own. The law looks at us as a mirror and we realize how far short we fall. But the test is for the believer who has placed their trust in Christ who did keep the law. And if I am to abide in him and walk in the same way as he walked, and if my life has been turned completely upside down by him, then my life will want to look like his. I will want to love my neighbor. Backing up a bit to verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Are you confused? I'm confused. Well, first of all, what's the commandment? It doesn't really say. But we know it's love because we have that context in chapter 3, verse 11, and also in 2 John 5 and 6. All right, so... Is that command to love, is it new or is it old? And what does it actually matter? Well, it's both and it matters. It's old in that it was commanded by the law in the Old Testament. It's also old because it was from Christ in his ministry since the beginning of his ministry. It's new because it's working itself out in the readers of this letter, including you and me. It's new because Jesus personified love in in a fresh new way and and poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, and energized by his Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. Christ raised love to a higher standard for the church and commanded his disciples to imitate his love. It, It matters because it is the love each one of us in Christ have been recipients of. It it was displayed to us by someone. First by God, as we read in chapter 4, we love because He first loved us. But then someone, someone in your life understood the nature of Christ. Someone understood the nature of sin and man. Someone who obeyed God and acted in love towards us, whether this was a a parent or a family member or or a co-worker or a friend or a minister or a complete stranger on the street. Someone acted in love. And we received 
And now we continue on by abiding in him and loving with his love. We no longer stumble around in the darkness. We, we no longer have the patterns of hatred in our lives. We are able to forgive as he forgave. We're able to love not only our brothers, but even our enemies. We're able to pray for those who persecute us because it's not our love. It's his love pouring out into us as his vessels being used for his glory. And it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because that love cannot come from us. It has to come from above. Well, Then we read in this next section of verses. And again, it seems confusing. Who are the little children? Who are the young men? And who are the fathers? And I think we need to, at this point, remind ourselves why John writes his letter. Chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing because there are influential leaders amongst them who are sowing seeds of doubt. And John writes to reassure them that they do know God. I'm writing to you, little children, because you have been forgiven. This is how the original reads. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known the Father. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome. They have come to know the true and living God. These are past events that have an ongoing implication for today. The, the, the test that he's covering, that John is covering, their, their, their intention is not to destabilize those who are in Christ or to unsettle them. He's writing this greeting now to affirm them that they can keep on with great assurance and read the rest of the letter. Knowing where their hope is, knowing where their salvation is, knowing that they can trust this. Well, what do we make of the age groups? Children, young men, fathers. And if you read any commentary, you'll find a bunch of different responses to this. Little children is a, uh, a phrase that he uses to describe all of them. He, he uses this elsewhere uh, in the letter as this sort of blanket term. And then there's this age distinction. And, and the young men, it seems to, with the intention, be for those who are young in the faith. And for the fathers, it's for those who are mature in the faith. And his message is, you know these things. You have experienced. You have been forgiven. You know the Father. You have overcome. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Even when you see some depart. Even when those doubts creep up into your mind, remember these things and go forth in the confidence in the completed work of Christ. And so we read stories of prominent pastors or musicians or somebody in Christendom who seems to have departed from the faith. 
And if you read some of these people's posts on social media and you read the responses of people who followed them as a person, as if they are the one that held their hope, it can be very depressing. Because then it unsettles these people's salvation. They, they, they begin to doubt because their hope was not in Christ alone. Their hope was in someone who sang a song that told them about the hope being in Christ alone, which is strange. We should not be unsettled by these things. We need to put our trust and our hope and find our courage in Christ. It's the only place we can go to. Don't look to outside resources. Look to Christ. Look to His Word. We can have confidence in who we are. We can go out into this world not afraid of what people will say or do to us, but trusting that God has a great purpose, that He has put us in a place for a purpose, for a timing, and that He seeks to use us. He seeks to use us, but we have to be willing to be used by Him to fulfill that. Let's pray. Father, the the text can sometimes seem so challenging and and even reads contradictorily in our minds. And yet we know that John is showing us great deep truths. That these are things that are true of those of us who have put our hope in Christ. We have overcome the evil one. We do know the Father. We have received forgiveness of sins. So, Father, may no one, may no one, no no attack from the enemy or from another man or nobody, nothing would seek to distract us from that, to, to, to undermine what you have done in our lives. May we stand confident in knowing that our hope, that our salvation is in Christ. And the outworking of that is that we seek to do your will. We seek to be your obedient people. That we can pray and serve and love as Christ loved. Oh, that you would give us hearts for that. For we pray this in Christ's name.